Hey, this is Natalie Sun, host of That's So New Media. We'd love to hear your feedback. Feel free to email us at info at nextart.tech. Now on to our episode. Welcome to That's So New Media, a podcast about tech's impact on creative culture. Today we're getting into grief and mourning and how digital artists are using new forms to express and possibly cope with deeply personal stories. Today we're joined by Kate Parsons. Happy to be here. And Russell Quinn. Hello. Hi there. Kate is a video artist and educator living in LA. She's the co-founder of Float, a VR AR art studio, and founder of Fembit, a video art festival celebrating female artists. She's also a professor at Pepperdine University and instructor at Art Center College of Design. Kate's practice surrounds human connection and our relationships to the systems we inhabit. Her graduate studies involved researching the ways we mourn and grieve. Russell Quinn is an artist, designer, and programmer who works independently as False Vacuum and co-creates stories at Sudden Oak. He used to be McSweeney's digital media director, and before that, he co-founded digital agency Spoiled Milk and made tools for game consoles at Sony. He's currently working on Linda and Joan, a narrative video game about the worst year of his life. Hi, friends. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Hey, hi. Yeah, thank you for having me. So both of your work is amazing and incredibly brave, and I can't wait to dive in. But sharing personal stories is such a vulnerable thing to do. Why'd you both turn to new media as a way to cope? I'm happy to take this first, I suppose. (laughs) Um, I didn't really, not at first. Um, I didn't really make any work at all when I was um, caregiving uh, for my grandmother back in the day. And really didn't, it was about an 18 month period of no creative output at all. And it wasn't really until I was kind of out of that sort of situation that I was able to really make work again. And it wasn't really until my graduate studies in 2011 that that kind of started. So it was like, it was about a year and a half afterwards. It's, it's kind of nice to hear that because I feel like most people feel like they have to be productive all the time. And to hear that it took you, you know, 18 months to kind of deal with what you're going through to then make work out of it. Um, super inspiring. There's a whole story there too, about just, um, like in my particular situation, it was, it was a caregiving situation with someone who needed 24 seven care. So it was like, there was no time really for creative output. Mm -hmm. Uh, but that said, I did keep a blog during that time. And I was able to then after the fact, like go back and like use those blog posts in some of my work. So there was some output. It wasn't my usual, like, you know, I've always been an artist since I was a kid. So you would have thought I would have been drawing or something to cope, but it's like when you're a caregiver for, you know, 24 seven, you just don't like, you're just doing what you can to get by. Yeah. So there was a lot of that. So my story sounds fairly similar in that um, I was a caregiver for my mother for um, about six months. um, And then she died. After that, um, I was dealing with like clearing out her house and dealing with the paperwork. And as Kate said, like, it's very difficult to, work at that time like even though you have a bunch of free time uh when you're caregiving and it can often be kind of tedious and boring but you always have to be on um, and ready to help and so for me um and then for Kate it sounds like it's, it's very difficult to actually do work like I didn't do any work for maybe um a year I didn't do any client work I didn't do any personal projects um but one thing that I did that also sounds similar to Kate is that I kept um, a journal. I mean, it wasn't really like a journal of my thoughts even. It was just like a journal of every single thing that happened. Um, And looking back, I think that that was just um, a mechanism for coping. Uh, Was I writing all these things down? But yeah, but obviously that, um, like if you then go on to do um, a project that is based on these events, then having that kind of medium um, is vital. So I wonder if like at the time I was like in my subconscious, I thought that I might do something with it afterwards and just wanted to write it down. Um, I'm not sure. And then I finally got back. So like all of this happened back in the UK where I'm from, uh, but I live um, in Los Angeles. Um, and I was gone for almost a year. And then I got back and then I was trying to figure out um, what to do and I mean, how to process all of this. Um, I started seeing a therapist um, and trying to work through all of these feelings. Um, but then also um, I started reading about how other, and like how other people in the creative industries or fields, um, like how, and how they dealt with, uh, with big events in life. Um, 
or some form of trauma or grief. And it's fairly common in like other art forms uh, for people to process that, right? Like if um, like novelists often write on a novel or a nonfiction book about these experiences, like filmmakers make movies. And then for me, um, I had worked in interactive storytelling for a number of years. So this medium just felt like my default medium. Um, and even though the subject matter is a little unusual to have in um, a game environment, for me, it made sense because I could do it by myself and I could tell the story. Both of you kept journals. What, I mean, you kind of touched on this, Russell, but Kate, when you were keeping these entries, was this for the purpose of making something or was this in the moment and then it happened to become helpful for a piece? Uh, I think for me, it was sort of just in the moment. Um, I had been researching a lot of caregiving, you know, blogs and and podcasts and things because I felt very alone. Like I was in rural Montana by myself, like in my like late 20s, you know, like just it's not a, you know, and caregiving for my grandmother, like it was not a normal situation really by any means. And so I was just trying to find other people who were kind of going through the same thing and, you know, found some good blogs, found found these other folks who were kind of dealing with similar situations and uh, just thought like, I should do this too. Like it would help me, you know, I'd feel a little bit better. I might feel less alone. Um, I think there was part of me that knew that I would want to have some kind of record of what had happened. Um, it's such an intense experience. Like you think you won't forget things. And like, there's a lot of things that are forever seared into my, um, my memory, but there's a lot of just day-to-day stuff that like, I wanted to make sure that, that I remembered. Yeah. So I guess it's, it's sort of both, but I think the primary purpose was to just like find a way to get through the day. Right. Right. Um, if you can clarify for our listeners, what was the ultimate piece that came out of caring for your grandmother? Uh, honestly, it's been my whole entire body of work since 2011. <laughs> um, but I will say the specific piece, um, that I'm thinking of that like really explicitly used the blog entries, uh, was a short film that I made, um, when I was in grad school at UCLA, but really everything I made from, you know, I'd say maybe like 2011, 2012, everything since then has had a little bit of that in there. It's whether it's just trying to reconcile how I feel about grief or how other people are are dealing with grief or just how as a society we deal with grief and loss, um, both, you know, how we do it well, how we do it poorly, what structures are there, what mechanisms are there to help us through these these trying times. Uh, all of that is, is of interest to me. And I, I just throughout grad school just kind of started running with those themes, really. And I think it'll probably persist. I think it'll keep being just broadly a part of my practice. Well, that's an incredible thing to do, and it's so difficult, especially to take something as hard to go through as that, and then almost relive it in order to make something for both of you. So, is there an example of a piece that you saw that inspired you to start making your own, or was it something that just kind of came almost subconsciously? Yeah, for me, there were um, a number of influences. I guess Um, I remember reading um, uh, this essay uh, by Jeff Dyer. Um, who weirdly um, is also uh, from Cheltenham, which is like the smallest hometown in England where I'm from. Um, and he is also an only child, and he also lives in Los Angeles, and his parents also died a few years ago. And he wrote this essay called On Being an Only Child. And I found that very um, inspiring, not only because he wrote about like um, the trauma of suddenly being pulled back to your hometown that you left a long time ago to deal with um, a traumatic event, but his essay was also very grounded in like the culture of small town England, both from like his childhood and the time that he was back dealing with all of this. And that really um, inspired me to to kind of ground this game that I'm working on in um, a similar cultural way, um, specifically about like small town England and not just um, like a unique story. Yeah. It must have been so nice to see someone else go through something similar, even though it's really difficult. It makes you feel less alone. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. I mean, that's one of the big things is, is like any form of media, like books or film or on essays or whatever that make you feel less alone. And yeah, like I wanted to recreate uh, that feeling by making um, a piece that was based on the experiences that I went through, like both so that I didn't feel so alone, um, hopefully, um, but also to give, that, um, to give that opportunity to other people that are going through similar things. Wow. 
Um, Kane, I know you give a lot of talks about this to this to your students. Um, are there favorites of yours or things that inspired you to make your own work? Uh, definitely. So yeah, there's um, part of my research uh, practice also just kind of involves this idea. Um, I guess for for lack of a, a better term, like right now, I'm sort of just calling it like media art and human universals. So like universal themes that we're all dealing with, and how media art in particular. Can either portray some of those universals or like provide some sort of space in order to process um, certain things. And, and there's quite a few that come to mind really that I found over the last few years. Um, I mean, for video art, anything by Bill Viola is automatically a winner. Um, you know, there's plenty of examples in fine art as well. Like um, the untitled portrait of Ross in LA by Felix Gonzalez Torres is a favorite vaporization by Teresa Margolis, uh, who's a conceptual artist. But as far as like, you know, like that dragon cancer, as far as games go, like, I'm so excited for Linda and Joan to come out. Um, it's just totally up my alley. I think one of the best ones I've seen as far as uh, virtual reality goes is Paisley Smith's Homestay, which deals with of the loss of, uh, they had an exchange student living with them for, I think it was a year, and he ended up committing suicide. And it's her, she made a this incredibly um, personal piece about dealing with that. And it's another piece that is just so brave. And I just, I think that that's one of the tops on my list as well. I have a really long list <laughs> that I could, you know, like Lauren McCarthy's uh, someone that uh, we all know and are, are friends with. Um, Lauren McCarthy and David Leonard's I, Susie is another one that deals with like using AI uh, for hospice and end of life care. I think, especially in times of uh, social distancing, is probably like a really pertinent piece to take a look at. No, definitely. Kyle McDonald in our last uh, episode had said something about um, how artists are hopefully the immune system to society. And, you know, we're going through something so difficult right now. And I'm hoping that, you know, through the, things like this and us looking at looking to other artists making incredible work, we'll start to get inspired in terms of what we can do to help ourselves deal with difficult situations like this. Yeah, that's great. I agree. The process itself is really hard, but do you think it has helped with the coping? Like, do, do you do it, do both <laughs> do the work as a, as a way to cope? Or is it something, I guess, what is the goal behind making work like this? Yeah, that's a, that's a tough one. <laughs> um, it's tough because I think for me, I almost felt like, you know, there almost wasn't a choice. Um, I, when I was in school, I kind of just, I knew I, I needed to make work. I was expected to make work. And I just kept coming back to this, this idea, like, you know, the person that I had lost that, you know, this, this really, really, really important pivotal moment in my life was something that happened in Montana. And I was back in California now. And so like, I couldn't go visit her grave. I couldn't go, you know, be with family. I couldn't do any of that. So I just started visiting cemeteries um, and just taking my camera with me. I'd film things. Um, it eventually uh, took to me like, taking discarded cemetery flowers, uh, and making work out of that. Um, and a lot of it, I kept trying to kind of be very intentional with, but really a lot of it was just like, okay, I'm here. This is how I'm feeling. I need to do something. This is what we're doing. Um, I tend to overthink things a lot. And, uh, in that case, I think I was just sort of more just doing and hoping that I would sort of figure it out later, which I think now, finally, I'm starting you know, I look back on a lot of that work and some of it's not good. Some of it's really not good at all, but there was a process there that was really important, I think. And like, now I have this massive archive of like me trying to deal with loss and, uh, my feelings towards it, my personal feelings, my feelings with, you know, about how my family handled it, how the broader society handles death. Like all of this baggage was kind of getting worked out and, uh, I'm still sort of yeah, digging through those archives, trying to see if they have anything left to teach me. Um, Russell, you're deep in it right now. I mean, you're developing the game as we speak almost. Um, and so what is that like? I mean, this happened for you a few years ago already. And so is it weird for you to continuously come back to it? Or is it something that's been on your mind for a while? Um, yeah, so I mean, pretty much everything that Kate just said um, it sounds extremely familiar to me. Yeah, so like all of this happened back in England, as I said. Um, I left my hometown in like 1997. Uh, my dad died a couple of months before I was born uh, from leukemia. And so my mother raised me by herself. I'm an only child. My other grandparents had all died. 
uh, my dad's brother and my mom's sister um, had died a few years ago too. So my mother and grandmother were like the last two members of my immediate family. Um, and as um, I alluded to before, my mother died uh, from cancer and I was caregiving for her. But then my grandmother, um, uh, she fell in her house a couple of weeks after my mother died and then she broke her hip and then she died uh, while she was undergoing surgery. And so um, I suddenly had a second funeral to um, organize and a second house to clear. By the time I was done and I was leaving the UK, then I had I mean, I had lost these last two members of my family, but also um, these two buildings that I um, had grown up with. Um, like both my mother and grandmother both still lived in the same houses like, since I was born. And so I was like leaving uh, the UK and coming back to California. And like everything had pretty much gone. Like my reason for going back to visit had gone almost. When like initially, um, I just started to like 3D model my mum's living room. Um, like I would go through, I might have taken photos of everything just for the memories. And then I would, um, I was like 3D modeling these things um, in Blender. And it was just so like comforting to be able to spend time in that space that no longer existed. Uh, that it just became, yeah, like addictive as like a way to feel like I was still there. And then like, the longer I kept doing that, then it, uh, then this like art style evolved from that. And then it's suddenly like this next layer of then wanting to, to like share the story because everything had happened to me in isolation. Like, yeah, I called my friends. My wife was still in Los Angeles and I don't really have that many friends back in my hometown because I haven't lived there for like 23 years. And so I was suddenly back. Yeah. And like, I wanted to like tell the story because even though I was talking, like I was talking about it a lot with people here, but nobody had gone through it with me. Um, I didn't have any like siblings that were also sharing this. And it felt important to like document my own feelings somehow. So in the future, I could look back on this and remember how I felt and what happened. And also just, yeah, like a natural desire that I think most humans have, which like if you go through something, then you want to share it. And it really came from that. Like, I'm not sure if I would have felt the same if I had still had this like big family of other people that I had been sharing uh, this loss with. Um, but everything was just, was just like inside me and it felt like my family's history had just been wiped out and I had to um, like preserve it in some way. Russell, I don't know if we've ever talked about this uh, before, but uh, I'm an only child too. And everything you're saying just like totally resonates. I was like, oh my God, me too. Oh my God, me too. Um, I was also like, you know, you just get thrust into this, you know, like I moved from California back up to Montana where like I grew up and graduated from high school, but I didn't, I had like one friend there who had, was also back temporarily, but there was no one else. Like, I mean, there were family members who just weren't involved really, but like there just wasn't a support system. Like my mother was in a town over and you know, she helped me out a little bit, but again, like it was, it was her, um, my parents are divorced and it was, um, her mother-in-law. So it wasn't as, you know, it, yeah, there was just, wasn't as much of a support system. So. That's hard. Yeah. Like when I got back, I really felt symptoms of, I'm a PTSD. Like I, I mean, not that I um, had ever been to war, but it felt like going to like a different land and going through, I'm like all of this, um, like insane trauma. And then like coming back and trying to explain it to your friends here and yeah nobody really gets it yeah like everyone like everyone has like a perception of what happens um it's very hard to like communicate and like obviously if you have other people that go through it with you then like you share that forever because uh, even though you have your own feelings about it like somebody else has gone through it with you and then for me like the only two people that did go through this with me both both died and so um, like I was left alone with my feelings. And so like the chance to like recreate this story and then share it with other people uh, was like, and it feels like I have this potential to like open up and share the experience with other people, which is impossible right now. Yeah. I'm so excited to play it. Like it just, um, it just resonates with me so much, everything you're saying. Cause it's just like, I also, I was engaged at the time and away from like my whole entire life as well. And I went through the whole thing by myself as well. And it's really hard to convey to people what that's like. Like, it's not just like you were saying before, it's you have to be on all the time. 
you know, even if there's a lull, like, oh, you know, I've got a movie on right now, you know, Graham's watching Pride and Prejudice for the 40th time, like, that's cool, I'll watch it with her. But you know, at any moment, you know, she needs something or she like needs to be moved or there's a, you know, you have to be constantly attentive to care. And it's, it's a certain type of stress that unless you've been there, unless you've done it, uh, is just really, really, really hard to convey. It's, it's kind of interesting to hear both of you talk about the pieces that you've respectively made, but also start to connect to each other. Because I feel like making work like this, especially in the interactive aspect is twofold. It's one, you wanting other people to kind of understand what you've gone through in your own story. But at the same time, the person doing it will be able to relate to you much more, but then also connect with it with their own story as well, which I assume is like why you guys have started to make games and started to make interactive pieces or new media pieces versus like other things um, that don't have the same interaction element. Yeah. So I get asked that like a lot, you know, why make it interactive? How does that help? And um, I have like a bunch of reasons, like, uh, you know, I'm like all of I'm like the normal reasons. I'm like interactivity makes you feel more connected to the characters that you are controlling. You can have some agency, blah, blah, blah. But it's not um, like I believe in those reasons, but I have worked in like interactive storytelling for a while. And like the reason why I gravitated into that was because of those reasons, right? So like this project comes along and I feel like I want to make something. Um, and I'm already like in that domain. Um, so this just feels like a natural thing. I'm like, it wasn't like this thing happened to me. I and mean, then I was like, should I make a documentary or should I write a novel? Because I've never done those things and I don't really know how to. So like, I guess, of course, I'm going to try and make it in like, um, like the medium that I feel comfortable in and have experience in, which is not to say that I don't think uh, that it is a good medium because I... The reason why I'm working with this is because um, I think that interactive storytelling is great. Yeah, that's really interesting because like I I come from kind of more of a fine art uh, sort of time based uh, media practice. And, you know, for me, once I eventually started making work again, you know, I was, I was making video art primarily. And there's a function of video art that I find really interesting and particularly attuned to the subject matter in some ways. With a lot of video and like time-based work, you're able to sort of explore or be in more than one tense at a time. So like you're able to be in in past and the present and the future all at the same time, which is like you get this idea too of of being able to capture memory, being able to replay it, functioning in the way that actual human memory does. And if you're working in in digital, um, in particular, like maybe your files are lossy, like maybe you didn't properly use the right exposure, like everything is, you know, everything's imperfect, just like memories might be. And for me, there was this really interesting interplay there, where I could kind of like work with some of the glitch stuff I was doing the glitch work um, that was also sort of about replaying memories and like trying to um, reclaim what was lost. You know, this idea too of the function of like home videos being something where like, you're constantly sort of trying to keep your loved one alive in some way. And so video for a long time, and maybe still to some extent, still functions that way for me. But that said, like, I think uh, what I've seen happen in the interactive space and some of the pieces I've started to do in the interactive space, just bring in kind of like what Russell was saying, this whole other element of being engaged with the work and engaged with uh, the actual processes that are taking place. The whole experience as a whole. I was reading this article about grief and mourning um, a few days ago, and the author had said something about how photography had started the whole movement of like people wanting to keep their uh, loved ones alive for much longer than after they pass. It's one way of like immortalizing the people that you love, and especially through interactive mediums and stuff. Russell, you're making sure that those houses that you grew up with never go away. You know, you're keeping these people and these situations and these relationships alive. Uh, much longer than they last on earth. But, you know, I, I don't know if there are any negatives that come with that. Do you guys have family that are reacting to you processing this grief or like making these things? Uh, my family doesn't really know. <laughs> so, um, they're not really, my family's not really engaged in, in media art. Um, they don't view via, video art or VR art. Um, most of them don't really know what I do except for like my my teaching. Um, I imagine some of them wouldn't be pleased if they read some of the blog posts, uh, from back in the day, but that's fine. I mean, 
they they weren't pleasing me at the time either. So it's okay <laughs> to quote to quote Ellen on the Conan podcast. Um, but they, you know, I was really angry at the time because like I had a lot of relatives that lived very close by, and I was not getting the help I needed. You know, and um, all of that kind of came out in the blog posts. So yeah, yeah. I think for me, like one of the most like liberating and freeing things about like all of my immediate family members not being here anymore is that I mean this was like an early realization that I had that like uh, that this story is now only my story. I guess only my story to tell because the other people that I'm not here anymore. I'm like obviously there's like a lot of like responsibility and like I want to tell I'm a true version of this, but it is only my story. And um, I've asked myself a lot, like if I would do this project, if like some immediate family members were still alive and it feels like, yeah, like an extremely difficult thing to navigate. And I'm not sure if I would. So yeah, um, I do um, have a couple of cousins um, that, yeah, the, um, I don't see like that often. And I have shared a couple of pieces of work and I, from the prototype of the game with them. And I think it's like a little confusing to them why um, I would want to do this. But yeah, but there's not really um, a lot of feedback, just some mild confusion. On that note, have you seen downsides to sharing such personal stories? Are there any or do you foresee any? There can potentially be some downsides. Um, you start to leave yourself open to others, in other people's indifference. If no one cares about the work, or no one talks about it. It's like the death didn't matter. The life didn't matter. And your grief isn't acknowledged. Um, so it's like when you've lost someone or you've had that kind of trauma, there's this sort of feeling that you want that person or that event to matter to others. Like, you know, it's such a pivotal moment for you, not just like you want to like share that with people just as like, you know, this human urge, but you want people to remember them and, or just know about them you know, prove sort of in a way that your loved ones are worth someone else's time or that your story is worth hearing. And you run this risk of making yourself completely vulnerable when you share that widely. There's this anxiety that's like, is your loved one going to be forgotten or worse? Like never thought about it all, never acknowledged. I know I made the mistake of showing the short film that I had made about caregiving and grief, the one that had the voiceover from the blog posts on uh, a grad school group critique. <laughs> and I pretty much knew within about three seconds of hitting play that it was a huge mistake. It was context. And basically, it's this extremely intimate film. It used pieces of home video. Um, it was my voice reading over some of the caregiving blog posts. And it was projected on this massive screen. Uh, so like, first of all, something that's that personal, just like I had edited it on my laptop. It's kind of meant to be watched small. Um, and it was just this massive projection and there were, you know, it's a group critique. So it's like, it is supposed to be critical. You're supposed to be critical of the work. You're supposed to be able to talk about it. Um, but for me, it was like, I, I felt like sort of related to what Russell said earlier too. No one really understood what I was talking about, you know, like to just talk about death or dying or grieving. But like, it was also very specifically about my caregiving experience at that point, like I didn't know anybody who had been in that position. Nobody in the audience could really relate to what I was saying. And partially that's maybe on me, like maybe I should have made a better piece, you know, whatever, all these things. Um, but no one really knew how to respond. And their sort of lack of response felt like a negation of my experience. And like, I know that's not probably accurate to what was happening. Um, I feel like no one really felt comfortable critiquing something so personal or something that they didn't really quite understand, but it just felt really awful. And it kind of went back into the vault after that. Like I did a couple other like edits and passes, but like for the most part, you know, when you show something, you lay yourself bare. And like, if the only critique you get back is someone saying they don't like your, your typography choice, like that doesn't really give you much to go on. And that is what happened. You know, you know, and I'm just, it's not on my site. Like I don't show it that often. And there's a reason for that. It's not the best thing I've ever made, but I just not really sure where it lives, I guess. Did it help you though? It did help me. And like, maybe that's enough. I mean, I had this urge sort of like Russell was saying too, like this urge, like you want to share it with people, but I just sort of very quickly just shoved it right back in the vault and was like, maybe later, <laughs> maybe this will come out again later. 
I think it's okay to make things because you need to at the moment. And sometimes it'll come back. Sometimes it won't. Russell, you were just talking about, I mean, I know it's not released yet, but I don't know if you have gotten any negative thoughts or like any, anything that kind of like stopped you from making the game. Um, but I personally, am so glad that you're still doing it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Um, yeah, I guess I'm less concerned about I mean, nobody caring about it and just more concerned about like putting anything out there on the internet and um, people having the opportunity to comment and uh, leave opinions. Because uh, I'm posting like little updates on the project to on like a Twitter account and on Instagram account. And I think there was one comment at some point, which was just a classic, like, um, it looks great, but this isn't a game uh, thing. So that just gave me, yeah, like a tiny like feeling of what one has to deal with when like you release anything in this world now. I like where people can comment on things. I choose to negate like three years of work in a pithy comment about um, it not being a real game or whatever. And I guess I would rather just like put it out um, in the world and not hear any feedback. <laughs> um, I guess like a relative point was that I was delaying 3D modeling my mother for a while. So I had like done like a 3D model of myself pretty early on in the prototype of the game. And I had it in there and walking around. And then I was just using like a cylinder to represent my mother because it felt weird to actually put her in the game. Um, and I was delaying it uh, like more and more. Like I was worried that like these types of feelings would like torpedo the entire project. Like could I actually like put my mom into the game and let other people control her? Um, but then like eventually I did. Um, like I just did it and it felt nice to like see her on the screen. Um, but then as soon as I put her into uh, the game world, like the environment, that I didn't feel like her. I mean, I realized that it's, I'm like, obviously, I'm like, those characters on the screen are not us. Like, they're just actors. And then that, like, like the context switch from, like, like, me worrying about, like, putting her in the game and then realizing that it was more like me being a director and, like, casting an actor. I mean, this is just, like, an avatar that represents it. And, like, the whole thing was just, like, based on what happened. Yeah, so getting over that hurdle, um, it actually gave me some like distance. Um, and ever since then, yeah, like I don't feel every bump of like, yeah, like, these people are the people uh, like in my family. It's uh, there's some like separation there, which I think is important. And I think this project has like helped my own like personal recovery by like giving me that uh, like, that distance between it because I have now spent like so much time with this and like, with this topic and the source material that it is providing. Uh, this distance and I'm no longer like bottling up all these feelings um, and they might come out in um, an unhealthy way like further down the line but I'm actually um, I'm grappling with them and dealing with them and I'm now getting this sense um, of distance and um, separation. Wow that's incredible that's so good to hear. Um, my brother's a therapist and he we have to talk about how um, to get yourself away from um, being in a really bad situation you have to confront it and like really experience it to then let it go. Like just as simple as anger or embarrassment or something, the more you push it away, the more that it'll come back to haunt you. And right now I'm reading a book called The, uh, the Body Keeps Score. And it addresses so much of this. I mean, Russell, when we were talking about PTSD, trauma isn't necessarily just coming back from war and having PTSD. Trauma comes from so many different places. But the best thing that we can do for ourselves um, is like come to terms with it because I mean, I might butcher this, but in the book, they talk a lot about how when we think about trauma, our bodies actually start to feel what it was like to be in the tra traumatic experience itself. And a lot of the work that we have to do is separating our present day from that trauma and say, okay, that thing is in the past. And like, I think doing art and going through that process and confronting it like this is an incredibly useful way of doing that, at least for us artists, <laughs> the way that we do creative things. So that's so great to hear. I know that like, you know, for a lot of people who are listening to the podcast, making a game or making video art might be really far reaching for them. Um, and I remember, you know, there was something as simple as uh, NPR's Scott Simon, who's an incredible journalist. Yes. Um, he did this incredible Twitter feed when he was in the hospital and his mom was passing away. He didn't really know what to do. So he just grabbed his phone and started tweeting everything that was happening live. And people started to comment and give him support in his time of need when he felt very alone in the hospital. And so I'd love for you guys to share other examples that you might have seen for our listeners to understand that there are so many different ways 
and also some possibly not public ways, you know, like I had a panic attack, like a pretty massive panic attack a few months ago. And the only way that I could get out of it was write a script. And the script hasn't gone anywhere. It hasn't done anything, but it was so incredibly cathartic for me to do that. Uh, so are there examples or um, other things that you've seen that you can share? The Scott Simon one is uh, always on my list. Uh, I think about that a lot because a lot of, you know, there's this history of, um, you know, taking photos of the deceased from Victorian times. Um, you know, there's this, this long history of that. Uh, and some people do still do that. There's a Bill Viola in actually in a couple of his pieces, he has video footage of like his dying mother, things that, you know, do kind of make you very uncomfortable. But I wish I would have taken more photos of her when she was with us, like maybe not like right after she passed, but I wish I would have had the wherewithal to do that, um, just to have a better record. Like I kept some records, but I know Scott Simon did get a lot of flack because people were accusing him of not being present, you know, with his mother, like spending time on social media instead of being there for her and all this. And I was like, sure. Okay. I can understand that point of view too. But like, I've read those tweets and like, he was there and he was, you know, this was how he documented it. And I honestly, he's probably really, really glad that he did it, that he has that now. Uh, for me personally, I'm like, obviously, I'm like, at the time I was not planning on making a video game about this, but I was doing things to help me to cope as well. Uh, so that was the journal that I talked about. Um, at one point in like at the midway stage of caregiving, when like things had become pretty stable, there were no big emergencies. For like a few weeks, uh, there was like a stable, a stable routine, I guess. And um, I remember just feeling the urge to write um, a short story about like how caregiving was like taking care of a Tamagotchi at some point. It's like weird um like repetitive cycle of just doing these fairly menial tasks which are so important to like keep the person comfortable or even to keep them alive um, and you have to like be aware of when these needs happen like you know that these needs are going to come up but the timing can vary and like new needs can come in and some old needs can like float away and you no longer have to tend to them but yeah but this just came out as like you know like a bad short story that i wrote uh, one evening by myself, but it really helped at the time. Um, it was uh, um, a very useful experience. Um, I also, yeah, like I took a bunch of photos. Um, I remember when I was leaving uh, my childhood house, which was like the house that my uh, my mom and dad had bought like a few years before I was born, I mean, a few years before um, he died. And like this house was going away. And like I had never met my dad, obviously. And like this house was a one like a physical instantiation of like an object uh, that he had lived in and I had lived in, but not at the same time. Um, and now it was going to be like cleared out um, and sold. Um, and I went around and I took photos of everything, but also uh, there were so many noises and sounds in that house that were so familiar to me. And like in a similar way to how people say that um, a specific smell can take them back to a certain time. And like, there were sounds in the house that just took me back to being like, um, like six years old, um, like the noise of like the front door opening, um, it had such a specific sound. Like the second, uh, the second stair on the staircase had a very specific creak. The letterbox is on like the front wall of the house, as many are. On um, like, back in the UK, um, like the mail comes directly into the house, and like the sound of the flap on the letterbox, they were still the same letterbox from like my youth, and still had that same sound. Um, so I recorded like all of these noises. Um, and now I have this like sound bank of noises that uh, that now I'm making this game that I can actually use um, the actual noise and um, that creaky step, right? Uh, so that can actually be used in the game. Um, like all of these things that I was just doing as a way to like document it, I just helped so much. Um, and even just um, having uh, my text message threads with like, my friends back in California was just such like a vital thing. I mean, I feel similar to like the, like the having um, a Twitter account, right? Like it's, um, it's private, but it's still just, um, it's like documenting what is happening. Maybe some feelings, but I found more importantly, just like the documenting what was happening was much more useful than how I felt about it. Yeah, so I just found myself like reflexively doing um, all of this documentation um, as a way of coping. It's so crazy to think about like how 
mindful you can be in that moment of like going through something so terrible. But Russell, I know that you've mentioned to me multiple times about how like the game itself is also reflecting like what it's like to be in that moment. And to all of us outside, we're like, wow, that was terrible, but it was months of your time. And over that time period, it was like so many parts of it were almost um, like chores. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's like we forget so many moments of it are like actually pretty mundane. We don't think about like those mundane moments in between that are actually part of real life. Yeah, definitely. Like the big, like bad things that went wrong in that time. I mean, there was lots of them. I don't know, extremely kind of traumatic and terrifying. Yeah, but like most of the time is just kind of boring. Um, and there's a lot of like sitting around. It's just like a strange mix and the sadness and boredom. Um, it feels kind of similar to this, this like self-isolation period that, that most of the world is going through uh, right now. In that half your time is just spent like kind of being like very sad at the things that are happening um, and being fearful. And like, I mean, like the other half of the time is just super boring. And um, it's a very like weird, uncanny valley of like, um, are these two things that, uh, that seem like they should be fairly separate? And like, if you're going through a traumatic thing, then yeah, then like surely you should feel like pain and sadness the entire time. Um, but actually, yeah, like when you do it, then um, I think for most people, there's these large amounts of time which are kind of unfilled and are kind of dull and repetitive. And emotions ebb and flow themselves too, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you might be watching someone pass away or you might be going through something difficult at the moment, but at the same time, there are weirdly so many humorous moments that could happen. There's so many curious moments that, that could happen. Emotion is not one thing. It's so many different things happening at once. And um, I think it's really funny. Like I personally have been keeping a diary since I was a kid, Um, but it's so funny even now, like I'll write down what I'm feeling and just a week later, I'll look back and I'll be like, wow, I can't believe I felt so strongly about something, but it has to be so in the moment and documented so you remember. I've gone through my own fair share of like really difficult situations. And like, I know that if I didn't write them down, I like, we are just such resilient creatures that we will just wipe it from my memory. (laughs) Um, so documenting it in the moment is incredibly useful when making things for it later on. When you're going through the process of making things, both of you, um, are there certain questions that you ask yourself when making the projects? Are there certain things that you've kind of come across that you didn't expect to? With some some of the video art uh, work that I was making in grad school and some of the other stuff that, that I was doing while I was there, um, I was actually a lot of the time kind of second guessing the urges that I was having. So I would go I was having a hard time kind of trusting, I guess, my instincts. Like I would, I would go to the cemeteries. I would do all these things. I'd take all this footage. I would take this, you know, discarded objects and try to like, you know, do things with them after the fact. But, you know, it's grad school. So everybody's critical of everything you're doing. (laughs) Um, And so you start to kind of internalize that even more so. And so the whole time I was like, you know, just worried, like, am I getting to the metaphor? Am I being too concrete? Does any of what I'm doing make any sense? Most of the time, you know, I talked myself out of doing some of the work, but a lot of the times I was able to just kind of just let myself just make stuff and was never really sure if it was functioning like it meant to, but just sort of lived in the hope that it would or that I would hit on something that like really resonated or really started to make sense. Um, but that said, this this kind of goes back to something that was mentioned earlier too, but you know, just even the act of trying to put form to grief or your understanding of grief can be seen as the work itself. So that's kind of one of the reasons I want to go back and re-examine some of the archives and just see what else I can learn from that work. Because there's a lot of stuff there that never really saw the light of day. Uh, but it's all important. Like it's all, they're all avenues that in things that I'm glad I tried. And I just, I think there might still be more there, I think, to learn from. I think it's really important to reiterate for artists or creatives in general um, that, you know, doing the work is not necessarily execution. You know, we don't have to be making things. We don't have to be, we don't have to make something after something really difficult happens. But a big part of an art practice in general, I think, is just being mindful with your emotions in the moment and digesting it, right? Kate, I'm sure you have a lot to, uh, in terms of like teaching the future creatives or the future artists that you have in class, um, but what it means to have a full (laughs) practice, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think. I've tried to, at least with my students, like, you know, just let them know that it's, it's okay. They probably feel a pressure to put form to whatever it is they're going through and they don't need to feel that pressure. Like they can just, you know, make things and, you know, explore those feelings kind of as they come. And that's kind of something that I would just in general kind of give as advice to anybody artist or not, you know, art, artistically inclined or not, is just, you just have to allow yourself to feel 
all the things that come with grief and with the sadness. Like you have to, uh, if you don't, it comes out sideways, like the feelings, you know, like it all, everything comes out at some point and it's kind of up to you if you want to allow yourself to just experience the emotions as they come, or if you stuff them back down and refuse to feel, or, you know, like actually deal with them, you know, that needs to be done, whether it's given form in an artistic context or not. Definitely. I think a lot of making work in general um, allows other people who might not qualify themselves as artists to feel things and be okay with like seeing someone else's process and being like, oh, I can go through that process myself, even if it's not making something necessarily. Like Russell, you just making this game and going through the long amount of time that it takes to even make a game, it's just an incredible example of what it means to understand what you're trying to do and understand what happened to you. Yeah. Um, I guess like even like saying to people that these things happened, um, I am processing it by doing this is, because um, you said, like, is maybe a thing that makes other people, like think that that is one way of processing it. And maybe it's an option that is open to them, either for something that they have gone through um, or something that they will go through um, in the future. I mean, there are so many like, things in media that we consume as a way to like prepare for things that might happen, right? Um, even if they are like wildly um, fantastical and they uh, would never actually happen um, like, in this world, or they are things that um, that everybody will go through at some point in some form. Yeah, but just like experiencing those emotions or seeing how other people deal with things is an important part of that process of learning. And like, as you said, like, that can either be from the story itself or the process that somebody went through in making it. I think about the Stephen Colbert and Anderson Cooper interview that happened just recently at the end of last year. Colbert talks about how difficult situations are hard to get through, but at the same time, they create such human moments and empathy for others who go through the same thing. And if it's anything about the human experience is that we all go through grief, we all go through really difficult situations. And to be able to understand someone else's makes us so human and it's so wonderful. But the story of my family and the story of um, like all those events that happened in that one year um, are obviously um, extremely specific to me and my family, but also separately, it's a thing that everybody will go through on like one end of that um, of that story, right? So they're all like very useful moments to share. Um, I share how like somebody else like dealt with that and coped with it. Um, and I realizing that, that it wasn't, like even though it was my story, but it was also like a universal story, was like another big reason that made me want to do this project and share it. It's interesting how it's both universal and so personal, and those two things can coexist. You know, it's like it's universal mm. in the idea that a parent has passed away, but it's also your personal story. And both those things can live in the same space. And by doing that, like by being so personal about it, our stories can also be that personal, but also <laughs> empathetic to each other. And it's like any like pop song about love, right? But the lyrics are normally I mean, pretty specific about I mean, that one person's experience. But everybody just like gloms onto it as um, as like a like a song that they can relate to I mean, whatever relationship that they want to like, paint it onto. Um, so this like gap between like a universal I mean, like a universal experience and then like um, a specific story um, is like a very common thing in many forms of art. Yeah, I, I think about that too. And sometimes just going back to like, who are you making it for? Like things that you might like ask questions of yourself, like as you're making, as you're making some of the work, I started to also question whether, you know, was what I was making too personal? Was it too impersonal? Like, you know, was there some sort of like perfect sweet spot that like people would be able to project themselves sort of into the work? And I feel like, um, actually, you know, the idea of the love song kind of puts it in a pretty good perspective. Like, I think that was a lot of worry that I didn't need to have, you know, I mean, like things can be really specific. They can also be, you know, much more broad, much more uh, metaphorical and, you know, different things work for different people too. Like a story without any context or um, like specific storytelling is kind of useless. Like nobody wants to hear like a generic love song, which is, is about like person A met person be, and then they had a dopamine hit, and then that person left them, and then their brain was there. <laughs> That's so romantic, like, and That doesn't work. Like, you need to hear like, somebody else's specific um, experience. And then, like, I mean, through the way that our minds work, then, like, you then um, like, either, like, relate that onto a thing that did happen to you, and like, you can imagine it um, happening to you, and then you can um, like, prepare yourself. Um, and then when that thing does happen to you, then you can think back to this, this story that you heard. Yeah, definitely. 
you know, I, I was thinking about this earlier, um, Russell, I can't remember if I told you before about this piece, um, but the artist, um, Sarah Rothberg did this, uh, really interesting VR work called, uh, it's memory slash place, my house. And it's a model of her childhood home, um, recreated in, you know, in 3d, uh, but she then used uh, home movies from her, like her childhood and like, um, I think sort of also, you know, pre her, <laughs> pre birth um, to kind of use as wallpaper around the house. And I was thinking about that as far as just like, that was very clearly made sort of for her family and for her. But just looking at the piece, like I haven't had a chance to actually explore the VR piece myself. Like it was, I think, made for the DK1. So I'm not even really sure if it's still available. But it's like being able to just know that piece exists makes me feel better. Like knowing that someone did that and like made a piece that was so personal about the memories of their childhood. I think her father had had died. And so this was kind of one of the reasons she had made it um, is also kind of one of the backbones of the piece. And sometimes it's just enough to know that someone else felt that and, you know, made a piece in, in response to that pain. Um, I'll be sure to put a link um, to you guys um, in the chat about this because it's something that I think a lot of people should see. And that kind of brought me back to, Russell, you were mentioning the avatar issue with your game and that, you know, sort. I know this is talked about also in, in that Dragon Cancer um, or in the Thank You for Playing, the documentary that was done about it and how they were choosing to give form to their child who eventually passed away of, of cancer. And I was super curious like, if you saw that that VR piece where a mother was reunited with like a 3d model of her deceased daughter. And um, I don't know if you saw that or not, but I would be super curious to know your thoughts on that. Kind of to put this in perspective too. Um, we recently lost a really good friend in October who lived with us for several months um, and he passed away early October. But while he was living with us, we were working on a 3d scan or like a photogrammetry uh, project. And we had sort of, you know, we had photogrammetried our cats. Like we also have, we had photo done photogrammetry of the house, like just kind of testing out equipment. And um, we were going through files the other day and realized we had a 3D scan of him sitting in our chair. And yeah, and it's like, you know, I don't know if you've seen the, the fidelity of some of the photogrammetry. Like it's not great, but like you can tell it's, it's him. And we're just sort of, this is literally just a couple days ago this happened. We realized we still had it and we were trying to figure out like, what we should do with it and like you know how it functions like how we feel about it like i couldn't i couldn't even look at it without getting really upset you know i mean it was just like it was in that weird not uncanny valley exactly but it was enough like him that it felt like him and not different enough to feel that sort of separation or that mediation like an avatar would give you and i kind of feel like that VR piece that I met you sort of functions in a similar way, although it's it's really hard to tell, I guess, not having seen it. Yeah, the VR piece, um, I saw the video of um, the mother experiencing it. Um, I had done the video so that um, you can see the VR um, like inside of the video and uh, the woman interacting with it. Um, yeah, and it was um, extremely powerful. My first thought was like how, um, how I would feel if that happened to me, and it was a I was you know, I was a family member that I had lost. And um, I wondered if um, if the feeling would be similar to um, like how I feel the next day after um, a very intense dream. Because uh, I often still like dream about either my mother or my grandmother or like other people. I mean, these dreams are rarely like nightmares. They're not like scary things happening. Um, but sometimes they're even quite boring. I remember one where me, my mother and grandmother sat like in my grandmother's living room and I think we were just like sad, like watching TV. I mean, I woke up and the dream just felt like I had been dreaming it after like the entire like six hours that I was sleeping or whatever. I mean, it just felt like such like a long experience. I mean, like all day, like I just felt like I had been there. I mean, it was like spooky, like an uncanny feeling of like, huh, that these people died a couple of years ago, but I have just hung out with them. Um, and I wondered if that like VR experience was a way of like controlling that because like you can't control when you have these dreams right i mean they might come at a time when like you don't want them to happen because they like intrude on your normal life and there might be other times that you want to have that experience that you can't choose and like simulating things in vr is um yeah like it's a way of controlling 
like the ways that those types of dreams make us feel maybe. Having said that, I wonder if I would actually want to do it. Yeah, I, I've thought a lot about that too. I think when I first looked at the videos, I, I felt like I could immediately project myself into that situation. And I think I know exactly how I would feel. And I think it's ex- almost like verbatim what you just described, where like I still, like it's been 10 years now since I was caregiver, you know, for my gram and, and when she passed. And like I still have dreams about her. And like sometimes they're like, you know, maybe not nightmarish, but sometimes they're, they're quite dark and sad. And oftentimes they're like you described, they're just everyday occurrences. And some, you know, she's still there. We're hanging out. We're like watching a movie, you know, or, you know, like it's just very almost benign in some ways, or it's like, you know, it's a, it's a dream again that like she, she never passed away. And like, I was mistaken before. Like I have those all the time. Like it's really quite common. And I think, I think that really kind of hits the nail on the head with this piece too. At first, when I saw it, I was like, this seems like this is very powerful, but is this a good idea? This, will, will this keep people from moving on? You know, does this just get you sort of stuck in the simulation? Um, does it not help you process things? Um, you know, like, how does this actually function? And I'm a little bit less concerned with that now, because I do think it probably functions, like you say, where it is a little bit more like a dream space than anything else. Like, I'm sure people could get addicted to going back and seeing like an avatar version of their loved ones in some sort of like dystopian world uh, that maybe we live in right now. Maybe we don't. I don't know. Um, But I think VR also does kind of have that sort of sense of dream logic often, or it lends itself really well to that. Yeah. Um, I just realized that I did actually experience this with my dad. Like I'm an old tiny version of this technology. Yeah. My dad died um, on Christmas in 1970. Eight, like our family maybe had like twenty five like different photos of him, uh, but that was it. Like there was nothing else. And then after my mum died, and then one of her like distant friends that that had known like her and my dad like showed up on the doorstep of my mum's house um, on Christmas Eve in twenty seventeen, and handed me um, a memory stick. Um, and on that memory stick was some video footage of my dad. Uh, so like the first. Like the only record of him like moving and, and walking around. And he had been at um, like a christening for this woman's daughter, like in the year that he died. So this was like six months before, like before he died. And I think it was still on like, on like Super 8 like film. And then this friend um, had like heard about um, my mom and heard that I was back in town. And um, I had found this film that apparently she had never watched like since... Uh, the day that it was made, like up in her attic, and she took it to like a transfer store, and they put it on like a memory stick, and then she brought it to me. Yeah, and I like thanked her, and then I like, went back inside the house, and I suddenly had this like tiny fragment on um, about ten seconds of film of um, of him just like walking out, um, like at the age um, of thirty eight when I was then. Like I, yeah, I suddenly saw my dad moving, and like um, it's like very similar to like VR and like how the technology was at the time, right? I mean, nobody in like that part of the world, in like um, like in the UK at that time, had like I was making home movies, but this one family um, had like rented one from somewhere. Yeah, so like the magic of like the moving image was like as revolutionary as I was like VR is now, I guess. Yeah, so I had that experience of like seeing yeah like a moving version of my dad. I um, mean, there's uh, there's even this scene. I uh, mean, my mum and dad are stood together and. And like they're given uh, this baby, I mean, their friend's baby that was being christened, uh, and they're given the baby to hold. Um, and this is like, I mean, this is like six months before he died, and then nine months before I was born. So that is like exactly the time that I was probably conceived. Um, and they're looking at this baby, I mean, like admiring it. Yeah, so it was like an incredibly powerful thing to happen. I mean, even though like that technology is so like old and outdated now. Like at the time, these like huge leaps in technology, like years later, made this person come to life for me. That's so incredible. Um, one of the pieces that I neglected to mention earlier that sort of touches on that too is the Hereafter Institute by Gabe BC. That's the piece that was at LACMA back in, I think, 2016. And it, it's in large part like what happens to your digital presence after you die? Like what happens to like your Facebook feed, like your digital files, memories, all these things. But 
uh, one of the things that was inside of that performance and exhibition, um, there was these, these lockets that had like little pieces of video um, just replaying on loop inside of them, um, sort of like in, in reference to, um, you know, someone keeping a locket of their loved one around their neck. But in this case, it was like just this little loop of video. That particular piece also had, um, like, you could get a 3D scan of yourself and you would have an avatar of yourself when you left. And, like, it's just overall a really incredible piece that I highly recommend anybody interested in this topic uh, look to. But it really kind of got at exactly what you're saying as far as just that the power of home video and, like, just the loop, like, what video loops can do and what they can actually be for people. We don't necessarily have to go high tech to make really great experiences that somewhere emotionally um makes me think of um the wilderness downtown by chris milk and aaron coblin a while back um and how like you know just by typing in your childhood address and having google maps go into the childhood address is just such an emotional experience even if it's not incredibly accurate to exactly how it felt when you were a child like it's crazy to see the neighborhood near you to see your house to see the street that you ran around on and something as simple as that it's like painting an emotional story or a context to that space um, makes it so different for each person. Yeah. And I've spent a bunch of time going um, on Google Street View um, and just going back. I'm like taking screen grabs of all of the shots of my mother's and grandmother's houses. And there's like one year where like you can see my grandmother like inside her house doing like a jigsaw puzzle. And like her brother lived next door to my grandmother for like their entire lives. They both bought their like council houses at the same time. I mean, lived in them. Um, like he died like seven years ago, I think. I mean, there's this one shot I'm on Google Street View uh, where you can see my grandmother like inside her house doing this jigsaw puzzle, and then like her brother is like stood in the driveway. And you can go back on Street View, right, um, and see like older older images. Yeah, like and that one image is probably like the last photo that uh, that was taken of them both in the frame. And um, even though only um, like, the one person is inside and the other person is outside, you can see them both. Yeah, so like I went through and did like screen grabs at every like possible angle from every year that the photos were taken. And um, it's very comforting. That's amazing. I I don't know. I should check and see if that's the case at my my grandma's house in Cascade. I know that there is some street view stuff, but I've never looked at the history on it. Uh, I just finished reading um, The Year of Magical Thinking by Joan Didion a few months ago and absolutely lost it towards the end of the book when she talks about how a big part of her grieving process was realizing that sometimes you actually want to continue grieving because you don't want to let them go. And a big part of the process becomes letting them become that picture or letting them become that person in your past rather than keeping them alive right now. That was such a mindful thing to realize about grief. I think a lot of us are, a lot of us think like grieving by itself is a difficult thing. And in reality, we're grieving for a reason. There's a process that we're going through in our minds. And why we're keeping ourselves in that state of mind, um, which is not good or bad. It's just what we're doing. I mean, I'm almost at a loss for words. I was pretty quiet throughout this whole podcast because, I mean, you guys are both just so incredibly generous with your stories. And I feel like this is such a big topic that we'll probably touch upon again um, in a later episode. But, you know, lastly, do you have any advice for someone dealing with trauma or grief? You guys might not be the experts at it, but you definitely have had a lot of experience with it. Um, is there anything that you think people should keep in mind or think about when they're dealing with it? Um, it's hard to think of a universal thing. Everyone, like everyone's situation is so different, but I think it's just important to um, share what you're going through and um, talk to people. And whether sharing um, is making some type of art project or it's just having a conversation with people or it's writing down how you feel. I think ignoring it is probably a bad thing for most people. But yeah, just uh, just talk about it. Yeah, and I think I, I mentioned this before as well, um, but I think my advice would just be like, y- you have to let yourself feel it. I mean, I, I guess I can probably just go ahead and generalize here and just say like, in the prevailing like American culture, like we tend very often to just put on a brave face or at least where I grew up, you know, it's like, cowboy way of life, like stiff upper lip sort of thing. And, you know, don't do that if you can. Don't deny any emotion you have. Allow yourself to feel sad and angry, all of the things, and feel it for as long as you have to. I also had a really good experience uh, talking with people after the fact. 
I had gone in and met with a counselor that was provided through the hospice care that we had utilized. And I, I think I only met with her maybe once, but just talking to someone who was trained in understanding, you know, the type of, you know, sometimes I hate to use the word trauma, which is like not really fair to my own experience. Um, but, you know, I, she understood where I was coming from in a way that like even many therapists may not, she was particularly trained in it. And it was so nice to be able to talk to her for even, I think it was like a 45 minute session. And that I remember that meaning more to me at that point than even talking to some members of my own family, um, which I also did. But, you know, it's, I think talking to someone and as many people as you can about the experience is not just validating, but it just also really just helps the process along, makes you feel heard and makes your, I guess, your grief process feel a little bit more real. Everybody's process is different, but I think talking about it is the thing that really, really helps the most. Well, you can find Kate Parsons' work at kateparsons.art and as part of float at float.land. You can find Russell with two L's, Quinn, at both fallsvacuum.com and russellquinn.com. And you can find more about his game, Linda and Joan, at www.lindajoan.com. Thank you both so much for joining us. It was such a wonderful, heavy, but wonderful episode. Thank you so much for joining us. No, thank you. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having us.